The scripture reading is from Psalm 29. It can be found on page 461 in the Black Bibles. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in the temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Carolyn and Phil. So much, Carrie and uh, Daniel, before that, thank you as well. That was awesome. Man, so much talent here. It's, it's so good. We are in uh, the beginning of a uh, sermon series for the summer uh, in the book of Psalms. We do this uh, from time to time at Christ the King where we take time to look at various psalms during the summer and there are a couple of reasons that we do this. One of those is practical and that is that it is the uh, prime travel time in summer and so if you're in and out a little bit uh, over the course of the next several weeks there, there's not a single line of a sermon series that you kind of have to carry yourself through. Each of these sermons can be a little bit self-sustaining and stand on their own so you're not missing anything. Uh, but also, uh, it's formational. It's purposely formational because of what the Psalms are and what the Psalms do. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms are instruction for prayer written down in poetic form. The Psalms, from their original compositions and all of the different various forms that they are in, have been meant to be sung and chanted and read out loud and prayed privately by the people of God. And everything is here. Every human emotion, everything that you can think about yourself and about the universe and about God and about, uh, and about the world and about justice and about injustice and about evil and about goodness, it is, it is all here. There are psalms of praise like this one, Psalm 29 that we just read. There are psalms of lament where the psalmist simply cries out to God, how long is it going to be lousy here, God? How long are you going to allow this to go on? There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of confession. There are psalms that cry out for justice in the world. And there are psalms that cry out for God's judgment to be poured out on evil and on those who do evil. It's all here. So one of the encouragements, one of the practical encouragements from the Psalms is this. If you struggle to pray 
and we all at some level struggle to pray it is hard for us to do that if you struggle to pray the psalms are a great place to dive into to begin to develop a heart language for communicating with God and that's my hope for all of us as we enter into the seasons we consider these psalms that this is not just a a weekly kind of one-off that these psalms and our meditation on them help us to develop a heart for God and a heart rhythm for communicating with God in prayer so let's now ask him to help us as we look into Psalm 29 Lord Jesus, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with eager expectation. We are dry bones, and we pray for the wind of your Holy Spirit to blow through this place at this time to awaken us, to embrace our Savior, and to embrace our mission in your world. Amen. When I was growing up uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, my neighborhood pool was only a short bike ride from my house. And generally speaking, during the summer, that is where I spent my summers. I'd wake up in the morning, I would eat some cereal, I would get on my bike, I would ride my bike to the pool, I would stay there until it was time for dinner, and I would ride my bike home. It's basically what I did all day, every day for some parts of my summer. It was awesome. And, and Jackson's a lot like Houston with respect to climate. Uh, it is hot and it's humid. So a lot of times, you know, there in Jackson, those afternoon thunderstorms would roll in. And I remember one time distinctly, my friends and I were at the pool. We were swimming. It was probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And off in the distance, we could hear the rumble of the thunder. And so the lifeguards do what the lifeguards do, even though it frustrates you at that moment because you're like, oh, this is so far away. They blew the whistle, we all got out of the pool, and we all got underneath this kind of gazebo area that was connected to the snack bar. It was the normal way that we sort of waited these things out until we could get back in the pool. But that's when it happened because things changed very quickly. It started to get dark, like dark like night, and the wind started to pick up, and there was even this kind of chill in the air. Things changed so dramatically, and that's when it happened. Simultaneously, the brightest light I'd ever seen and the loudest noise I'd ever seen happened all at the same time. This gigantic kaboom, and my hair stood on end, and I even felt a little bit of tingle in my body, even though I was not struck by lightning. But a tree that was on the same property that I was standing on, that was there in that area with the pool, had been struck by lightning. It's the closest lightning strike I'd ever witnessed in my life. And when we all looked up, you could see this kind of jagged zigzag burn mark that was going down this tree, and it was smoking. And every single one of us, you know, all of the 10-year-old kids that were gathered under that, you know, awning, all at the same time went, whoa. Because it was awesome. But it was also, in some ways, terrifying. It was terrifying and awesome all at the same time. Psalm 29 is an invitation to you to stand back, to see the works of God in the world, and to go, whoa, it's terrifying and it's awesome. All at the same time. 
It's a call to each and every one of us to live lives of wondrous worship, wonder-filled worship, because God is the glorious King who is also gracious to his people. That's what Psalm 29 is about. It is a call for us to live lives of wondrous worship because God is the glorious King over all things, over all creation, who is also gracious to his people. The structure of Psalm 29 is that it is a psalm of praise. And it's structured the way that many psalms that fall in this genre fall. First of all, there is a call to worship, ascribe to the Lord. It's a call to worship. And then the psalmist lists all of the reasons for doing so. And in this particular psalm, the reasons that the psalmist lists for the worship of God are really bound together by an extended poetic metaphor that runs from verse 3 through verse 9. It is the image of a great and powerful storm containing flashes of lightning and loud claps of thunder that are referenced to be the voice of the Lord. And this storm forms over the ocean and then it rolls in off of the ocean over the land until it can be seen and heard no more because it is dissipated off in the distant desert. You can almost see David, the shepherd, standing on a high hill, watching the sheep, seeing this storm approach land from the sea, and then taking shelter from the rain and the thunder and the lightning and watching the storm as it rolls off into the distance until it can be seen no more. This prompts reflection on him, with him, through him, on the power and the might and the majesty of God and it spurs spontaneous worship and he writes it down. Worship is exactly the correct word here. Most simply defined worship means ascribing ultimate worth to something or someone else. That's at its most basic form that is what worship is. It is ascribing to something ultimate worth. And the Bible is clear, very clear, from beginning to end, that ultimate worship belongs to God alone. So wondrous worship is, it should be, as human beings created in God's image, wondrous worship should be the disposition of our lives. As we look with amazement at the work of God in our lives and at the work of God in the world and then we have the the privilege and the opportunity of joining with God on his mission to reconcile all things to himself through his son Jesus Christ and that of course raises the key question for all of us here this morning do you ascribe ultimate worth to God alone or do you ascribe ultimate worth to something else or to someone else? If God is who he says he is and does what the Bible says that he does, it is both useless and foolish for us to give our hearts the attention and the lives and the passion of our hearts over to anything else. But we do it all the time and we do it because of our sin. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, 
When sin entered the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, their rebellion against God, one of the effects of this sin was to blind us to the knowledge of God that should be apparent to us because of the power that is displayed in his creation of all things. But being blinded by sin, we miss God in his creation. And we are easily lured to the worship of other things, lesser things. Worshiping created things, as Paul says, rather than the creator. And the consequences of this false worship is that we grow farther and farther and farther away from God and we begin to bear the tragic consequences of giving weight to people and things that were not created to bear such weight and they can't sustain that weight. So we spend our lives seeking but not finding. We put our hearts into something or into someone else but that other thing or that other person turns on us and it ultimately crushes us or over time we just give up searching for the truth and we live our lives with this one gigantic kind of shrug of the shoulders does this sound familiar to you it sounds very familiar to me at some point Every single week, at some point, I'm going to find myself sorely tempted to live for the praise of other people. I'm going to find myself deeply debilitated by worry that something horrible is going to happen to me or to somebody that I love or you know, to Christ the King or to something else. Or I, I, I'm going to find myself daydreaming about resting, getting away, having a nicer, more relaxing vacation or a house, you know, that that has more opportunity for escape. You know, and I'm going to find myself daydreaming. I'm going to think, oh, there's true life. If only I had those things, then everything would be okay. Do you ever do this? Do you ever do this? Maybe just a little bit, because if you do, And I think you do, because we all do. Let's be real. Psalm 29 is for you, and that's great news. Psalm 29 is for you because it asks a simple but profound question. Why is God worthy of your worship? Why is God worthy of your worship? And then the psalmist gives us three answers. God is worthy of your worship because of his character. God is worthy of your worship because of his strength. And God is worthy of your worship because of his grace. First, God is worthy of your worship because of his character. There are two words that David uses in the first three verses of Psalm 29 that describe the demonstrated character of God. The first is holy. The second is glory. The holiness of God describes who God is. And I don't want to be confusing here. Holiness, as theologians from the Puritan Thomas Watson to the Presbyterian Charles Hodge pointed out, is not simply one attribute of God among many of his attributes. Holiness is rather the capstone of the character of God. It is that attribute of God that binds all of his other attributes together. As God himself said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 57, my name is holy. 
My name is holy. I am wrapped up and enveloped by holiness. It is who I am. The holiness of God is his total otherness. His complete moral perfection. His total, absolute separation from sin of any kind. The holiness of God is spoken of in the Bible as a consuming fire. Enveloping and consuming anything and anyone that does not measure up to it. So the holiness of God poses a really big problem for us because we do not measure up to the moral perfection of God. We lie and we lust and we hate and we steal. We are greedy and we are drunkards and we are gluttons. We are filled with pride. We exalt the rich over the poor. We harbor malice toward people of other races and other ethnicities. We are callous and hardened to the cries of justice. We push those that we fear away from us rather than like our Savior Jesus drawing them close to us so there we can speak the truth to them in love. And one aspect of worship is simply admitting this. One Necessary prerequisite for true worship is admitting this, seeing God rightly and seeing ourselves rightly based upon the character of God and admitting it. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, the psalmist writes. God is holy. You and I, not holy. He is worthy of our worship. We are not. The glory of God is the second word that the psalmist uses. The glory of God is the esteem of God based upon his holiness and his actions in the world. When David tells us to ascribe to the Lord glory or to call out in our corporate worship together glory, it is to confer upon him the esteem that only he as God deserves. Johann Sebastian Bach has come down through history as one of the greatest composers of all time. Some would argue, but this is an unwinnable argument probably, you know, the greatest composer of all time. Uh, uh, when biologist Lewis Thomas was asked one time what message he would send, this is a little bit of a crazy question, but could be interesting. He was asked one time, what message would you send to extraterrestrial beings out in the universe to communicate the civilization on earth? And he said that he would vote for Bach, all of Bach to be streamed out into space over and over again, he said. And this, of course, would be bragging, is what he said. Helmut Volke, who is a blind master of the organ in, uh, in, in Germany, who is dead now, said that Bach opens a vista to the universe. After experiencing him, people feel that there is meaning to life after all. Well, that's on purpose. Because Johann Sebastian Bach was also a deeply committed follower of Jesus. And every, his goal in composing music was to bring glory 
to God and to bring the people that experienced his music to a place of worship and awe. One time he said, I write the notes, but God makes the music. And every single time that Johann Sebastian Bach sat down to begin the composition of a piece of music, before he wrote a single note, on the top of that page, he would write two letters, lowercase, J period, J period. That meant Jesu Juva, Jesus, help me. First words before he wrote any music. At the end, after he had composed and edited and he was finished with a piece of music, he would write three more letters at the bottom of the page in lowercase. And you can still see this on pieces of music. S, D, G, Soli, Deo, Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Jesus, help me. I am not sufficient for this. And when he had completed his work, Glory to God alone. This is a life that is characterized by worship, by living before the face of God as the 16th century reformers would put it. It is first and foremost characterized by humility and prayer. Jesus, help me. Worship demands that we understand and own that we as human beings are not the measure of all things you are not perfect and I am not perfect and we will never be perfect because only God is perfect you do not have the power to mold your children into perfection no matter how hard that you try they cannot ever be God for you they will not and if you try to make them into that you will kill them you will destroy them You will absolutely destroy them. And you will destroy yourself in the process. Seeing God rightly, seeing ourselves rightly in his light, this really is the first step to living a life that is characterized by worship. We worship God because of his character. Secondly, we worship God because of his strength. The meat of Psalm 29 is poetically tied together by a repeated phrase. The voice of of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Now this is most likely the psalmist's reflection on the thunder that was embedded in that storm, but poetically he turns it into a reflection on the strength of God, his rulership over all of his creation and over all nations. You can just go down the list. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Now this is a poetic reference back to Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters bringing order to the chaos of his creation. The chaos of this world, this is telling you, is not in control. The world is not out of control. God is in control of his creation. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, the strongest trees, the most valuable natural building materials known to human beings in that part of the world cannot withstand the power and the strength of God. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire and shakes the wilderness. The people of Israel experienced the power of the Lord when Moses went on top of the mountain to receive the law of God. The earth shook, thunder, lightning, loud noises all characterized the presence of God in his power and his strength and his kingship. 
the voice of the Lord, the psalm says, makes the deer give birth. It's probably better translated in this context, makes the oaks shake. God is able to strip the forest bare with just the sound of his voice. And what is our response to the strength of God, to his creative power, to the fact that he sustains all things, to the fact that this world is not out of control, to the fact that even though nations of this world want to say, I am strong, they bow before his throne always. What is our response? The psalmist says, we gather together in his temple. We gather together as the temple of God, as the body of Christ, and we cry out, glory, glory to you, O God. That is our call. So why do we have such a hard time doing that? You know, we live in an age of unprecedented human achievement. I was reflecting on this this morning. Do you know what? I am wearing right now an entire computer on my wrist. Like a whole thing. It's right there. Like something that 40 years ago would require a room like this size to do. It's right here. Right there. Isn't that weird? That is so super weird. And then this week, as I was reading the paper begin to scratch my head because I can't believe that this is actually happening. We have started another presidential election cycle where we have multiple men and women from both political parties telling you that if you put your trust in them, they will save you from whatever it is that you fear the most. Pick whatever it is that you fear the most that most frightens you in the world and there's somebody out there that is telling you that they can save you from that. We don't have a problem, you see, lifting up our voices and crying glory. We just have a problem lifting up our voices and crying glory to the right object. Whom do we place that ascription of praise? You may struggle not to place it on yourself. Because you might go through life believing that nobody can do what you do better than you do it. It's impossible. Nobody can do that. You made a life for yourself out of nothing. You rose to the level that you stand at now and you are able to stand up and you are able to look about all of your achievements and you are sorely tempted to cry into the mirror, glory. Some of us do feel the temptation to put so much hope, maybe in our nation or in our leaders, without being even intentional about it, that your impulse is to side with a politician or a policy that you agree with, even if it comes into conflict at points sometimes with the revealed word of God. Why? Because it may reveal that your hope is somewhere else and that that is the place that you want to stand up and cry glory. Some of you may be tempted to put the weight of your heart on another human being a spouse or a child because you feel lost without them, a hero, maybe even a religious leader. People do this all the time. And that person becomes your ideal of what a human being should be. So you stand up and you look at them and you cry, glory, but then what happens? They turn out to be a jar of clay just like you are. They fall or they disappoint you and you are lost. 
God alone is the creator of all things. Only God is worthy of our ultimate worship. Only to God should we stand up and look up and cry, Glory! Because only He can bear that weight. And last, we worship God for His grace. The psalmist closes not with words of judgment on the nations. He has already pointed out his rule and his power over them. But he closes this psalm with blessing on his people, the people that he has brought into relationship with himself. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. It is worth noting who the actor is in these verses and who the recipient is in these verses. May the Lord give strength. May the Lord bless. He is the actor. We are the recipients. The blessing of God is initiated by him and received by us. But what makes verse 11 more than just a wish or an ungrounded hope thrown out into the air? It is Jesus. It is Jesus our Savior, or to put it as the Apostle Paul did in Ephesians 2, Christ himself is our peace. Several weeks ago, Shannon and Andrew and I took a short weekend trip to Washington, D.C. We just wanted to go. Our other kids are off gallivanting around the world and the country, and it was just the three of us. We went to D.C. Our flight was supposed to leave uh, on a Thursday night at 7.30 p.m., but it was a typical Houston Thursday with a ton of storms, so we didn't end up leaving until 10.30 p.m., and that was not fun. But uh, there was something cool that happened. Because we were late, we were driving to the airport, uh, and we were driving, we were going to the airport probably around 7 because this was the first time that our flight had been canceled, not the second or third time. Uh, and I saw, and we saw the coolest thing a rainbow. It was on a Thursday night, a rainbow that looked like it spanned the entirety of Houston. I can honestly say that I had never seen one so big. I'd never seen a rainbow that was that big that had a clear starting place and a clear ending place. And it looked like it went from horizon to horizon in Houston. It was clear as day. It was clear as a bell. It was amazing. And of course, it got me thinking about God, about the time in Genesis 9 when God made his covenant, his promise with Noah, and he set his rainbow in the sky. And God said, and God said, When I bring the storm, I will see my rainbow, and it will remind me, and never again will I destroy my creation. But how does God ultimately keep that promise? When I was in seminary, I read a book by a Dutch theologian. His name is Gerhardus Voss. The book is called Biblical Theology. He wrote it in Dutch and somebody translated it into English. And I can honestly say that I didn't understand a word of that. Except for one part of it that made total sense to me. And it was this part. Because Gerhardus Voss, in writing about God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, made the point that if you were to take that rainbow that spanned the sky and you were to insert an arrow into it, that arrow would be pointing up at heaven and not down at the earth. And that is symbolizing this promise that God made. The rainbow is a symbol of grace. 
And not just an empty symbol of grace, it's a meaningful and action-packed symbol of grace. Because at just the right time, God did load an arrow into it, pointing it up and firing it at his son. The perfect, spotless, righteous lamb of God. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still sinners, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. No one and nothing else that you and I are tempted to worship can do that. No one or nothing else that we are tempted to hope in can do that. Donald Trump cannot do that. AOC cannot do that. Your favorite internet preacher cannot do that. Your husband or your wife cannot do that. Your children cannot do that. Your work cannot do that. Your possessions cannot do that. You cannot do that. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Let's pray. Father, we do gather together this morning as your people in this, your church, simply to cry out to you, glory. As we walk away from this place, Father, where we will be sorely tempted to place our hope and our hearts on many other things, walk with us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would live lives of purposeful worship to you as we undertake your mission in your world. Amen.